Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper. Read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 7 Back when Luke and I were kids, Falk said. Well, not exactly kids. Older than that. Sixteen, actually. He broke off as he sensed a swell of movement at the other end of the bar. The place had filled up without Fork noticing, and when he looked up now, more than one familiar face glanced away. Fork felt the ripple of disruption a moment before he saw it. Drinkers lowered their eyes and shuffled aside without complaint as a group moved through the crowd. At the head was a meaty bloke with sludge-brown hair topped by sunglasses. Fork felt a cold trickle seep through his guts. He may not have recognised Grant Dow at the Hadler's funeral, but there was no mistaking him now. Ellie's cousin. They had the same eyes, but Fork knew there was absolutely nothing of her in him. Dow stopped in front of their table, his flabby frame blocking their view. His T-shirt advertised a Balinese beer brand. His features were piggy, small and cramped together in the middle of his face, while his beard straggled across a thick chin. He was wearing the same look of defiance he'd used to stare down the mourners at the wake. Dow raised his glass towards Fork in a mock salute and flashed a smile that went nowhere near his eyes. You got balls turning up here, he said. I'll give you that much. Don't you reckon Uncle Mal give him that much, eh? Dow turned. An older man hidden behind him took a shaky step forward and Fork came face to face with Ellie's father for the first time in 20 years. He felt something lodge in his chest and caught himself swallowing. Mal Deacon had a curve to his spine now, but was still a tall man with ropey arms leading to large hands. His fingers were knotted and swollen with age and were almost white as he gripped the back of a chair for support. His forehead furrowed deep into a scowl and his exposed scalp was angry pink between strands of grey hair. Falk braced himself for an outburst, but instead a look of confusion flashed across Deacon's face. He shook his head slightly, the loose chicken flesh on his neck rubbing against a dirty collar. Why are you back? Deacon's voice was slow and raspy. Deep grooves appeared on either side of his mouth as he spoke. Every single person in the pub was determinedly looking elsewhere, Falk noted. Only the barman was following the exchange with interest. He had put down his crossword. Hey? Deacon slammed a gnarled hand against the back of the chair and everyone jumped. Why are you back? I thought you'd got the message clear enough. You brought the kid with you as well? It was Falk's turn to look confused. What? That bloody son of yours! Don't act dumb with me, dickhead. 
He back too, you boy? Falk blinked. Deacon had mistaken him for his late father. He stared at the old man's face. Deacon scowled back, but there was something sluggish about his anger. Grant Dow stepped forward and put a hand on his uncle's shoulder. For a moment, he appeared to consider explaining the mistake, then shook his head in frustration and gently forced his uncle into a chair. Nice one, you prick. You've gone and upset him now, Dow said to Fork. I've got to ask you, mate. You think this is the best place for you to be? Rako pulled his Victoria police badge out of his jeans pocket and slapped it face up on the table. I could ask you the same thing, Grant. This the best place for you right now, you reckon? Dow held up his palms and twisted his face into a picture of innocence. Yeah, all right, no need for that. Me and my uncle are just out for a social drink. He's not well, you can see that yourselves. We're not the ones looking for any trouble. This one, though. He looked straight at Fork. He tracks it behind him like dog shit. An almost imperceptible murmur rolled through the room. Fork had known the story would resurface sooner rather than later. He shifted as he felt every eye in the place glance towards him. The hikers were hot and bored. The mosquitoes were out in force and the track by the Kiwara River was proving slower going than they'd expected. The three of them trudged along in single file bickering when they could be bothered to raise their voices over the sound of rushing water. The second in line swore as he ran chest first into the group's leader's backpack, spilling his open water bottle down his front. A former investment banker, he'd moved to the country for his health and had spent each day since trying to convince himself he didn't hate every minute of it. The leader held up his hand and cut short the grumbling. He pointed to the murky river water. They turned and stared. What the hell is that? All right, we'll have none of that, thanks, the barman called out from behind the counter. He got to his feet and was resting his fingertips on the countertop. Beneath his orange beard, he was unsmiling. This is a public bar. Anyone can drink here. Him, you, and you can take it or leave it. What's the third option? Dow flashed his yellow teeth at his mates, who dutifully laughed. Third option is, you're barred. So, your choice. Yeah, always making those promises though, aren't you? Dow stared at the barman. Rako cleared his throat, but Dow ignored him. The barman's words came back to Fork. Out here, those badges mean less than they should. The problem's not with him being in the bar. The room was almost silent as Mal Deacon spoke. It's him being back in Kiwara at all. He raised a finger thick with arthritis and pointed it between Falk's eyes. Understand this and tell your boy. There's nothing here for you except a lot of people who remember what your son did to my daughter. The investment banker vomited his ham sandwiches into the bush. He and the other two were soaking wet, but he barely noticed. The girl's body now lay on the trail, a pool of water seeping out around her. She was slim, but it had taken all three of them to drag her to the bank. Her skin was unnaturally white, and a slick of hair had fallen into her mouth. The sight of it disappearing between her pale lips made the investment banker gag again. 
Her earlobes were red raw around the piercings. The fish had taken the opportunity. The same markings were visible around her nostrils and painted fingernails. She was fully clothed and looked young where the water had washed her makeup away. Her white T-shirt was almost transparent as it clung to her skin, displaying her lace bra beneath. Her flat boots were still tangled with traces of the weeds that had tethered her body to the spot. Both boots and every pocket of her jeans had been packed tight with stones. Bullshit. I had nothing to do with what happened to Ellie. Fork couldn't help himself and instantly regretted it. He bit down on his tongue. Don't engage. Who says? Grant Dow stood behind his uncle. His cold grin was long gone. Who says you had nothing to do with it? Luke Hadler? As he said the name, it felt like air had been sucked out of the bar. The thing about that is, Luke's not here to say much of anything anymore. The fittest of the trio had run for help. The investment banker sat on the ground near his own pool of vomit. He felt safer there, engulfed in the acid stink, than near that horrific white being. The group leader paced, his feet squelching. They could guess who she was. Her photo had been in the paper for three days. Eleanor Deacon, aged 16, missing since Friday night when she failed to return home. Her father had given her a night to cool whatever teenage impulse might have been keeping her away. When she didn't come home on Saturday, he'd raised the alarm. It had seemed like an age before emergency workers arrived at the river. The girl's body was taken to the hospital. The investment banker was sent home. Within a month, he'd moved back to the city. The doctor examining Ellie Deacon's body reported the cause of death as drowning. Her lungs were soggy with the river. She appeared to have been in the water for several days, he noted, most likely since Friday. He reported some bruising on her breastbone and shoulders and abrasions on her hands and arms, not inconsistent with damage caused by debris rushing past in the water. There were some old scars on her forearms, possibly evidence of self-harm. She was not, he noted as an afterthought, a virgin. At the mention of Luke's name, there was a ripple around the room, and even Dow seemed to sense he'd gone too far. Luke was my friend. Ellie was my friend. Fork's voice sounded strange to his own ears. I cared about them both. So back off. Deacon stood up, his chair squealing against the floorboards. Don't you talk to me about caring for Ellie. To me, she was blood. He was shouting, his hands shaking as he thrust a finger at Fork in accusation. Out of the corner of his eye, Fork saw Rako and the barman exchange looks. You reckon you and your boy had nothing to do with it? Deacon said. What about the note, you lying bastard? He said it with a flourish, like a conversational trump card. Fork felt the air go out of him. He felt exhausted. Deacon's mouth was twisted. Next to him, his nephew was laughing. He could smell blood. Not so quick with an answer to that, are you? Dow said. Fork forced himself not to shake his head. Jesus, that bloody night. The cops spent two hours picking apart Ellie Deacon's bedroom. Thick fingers awkwardly probed through underwear drawers and jewellery cases. The note was almost missed 
Almost. It was written on a single page torn from an ordinary exercise book. It had been folded once and slipped into the pocket of a pair of jeans. On the page, written in pen in Ellie's handwriting, was the date she had disappeared. Underneath that was a single name. Fork. Explain that, if you can, Deacon said. The bar was silent. Fork said nothing. He couldn't. And Deacon knew he couldn't. The barman banged a glass down on the counter. Enough! He looked hard at Fork, considering. Rako, holding his police badge visibly in his palm, raised his eyebrows and gave a tiny shake of his head. The barman's eyes instead settled on Dow. You and your uncle leave. Don't come back for two days, thanks. Everyone else? Buy a drink or get out. The rumours started small and by the end of the day were big. Fork, 16 and scared, holed up in his bedroom with a thousand thoughts clamouring. He jumped as a tap sounded against the window frame. Luke's face appeared, ghostly white in the evening gloom. You're in the shit, mate, he whispered. I heard my mum and dad say people are talking. What were you really doing on Friday after school? I told you, fishing. Up river though, miles away, I swear. Fork crouched by the window. His legs felt like they wouldn't hold him up. Anyone else asked you yet? Cops or anyone? No, the guy knew though. They think I was meeting her or something. But you weren't? No, of course not. But what if they don't believe me? You didn't meet anyone at all? No one saw you? I was on my bloody own, wasn't I? Right, listen. Aaron, mate, are you listening? Right, anyone asks, you say we were shooting rabbits together on the back fields. Nowhere near the river? No. The fields off Curran Road, nowhere near the river. All evening, okay? We were mucking around like usual. We only hit one or two. Two, say two. Yeah, okay, two. Don't forget. We were together. Yeah, I mean, no, I won't forget. Oh, Jesus, Ellie, I can't say it. What? Say it now, what you were doing. Practice. Luke and I were shooting rabbits together. Again. I was with Luke Hadler shooting rabbits out on the Curran Road fields. Say it until it sounds normal and don't get it wrong. No. You got all that, yeah? Yes. Luke. Mate. Thanks. Thank you. Chapter 8 When Aaron Fork was 11, he'd seen Maldeacon turn his own flock into a staggering, bleeding mess using shearing clippers and a brutal hand. Aaron had felt an ache swell in his chest as he, Luke and Ellie had watched one sheep after another brawled to the ground of the deacon's shed with a sharp twist and slice too close to the skin. Aaron was a farm kid, they all were, but this was something else. A pitiful cry from the smallest ewe made him open his mouth and draw breath, but he was cut short as Ellie pulled him away by his sleeve. She looked up at him and gave a single shake of her head. She'd been a slight, intense child at that age, prone to long bouts of silence. Aaron, who leaned towards the quiet side himself, found that suited him fine. They usually let Luke do the talking. Ellie had barely raised her head when the noises from the barn had floated over to where the three of them had been sitting on the sagging porch. Aaron had been curious, but it had been Luke who insisted they abandon their homework to investigate. 
Now, with the wails of the ewes in their ears and Ellie's face fixed into an expression he hadn't seen before, Aaron knew he wasn't the only one wishing they hadn't. They turned to leave, and Aaron jumped as he saw Ellie's mother watching silently from the barn's doorway. She was jammed up against the frame wearing an ill-fitting brown jumper with a single greasy stain on it. She took a sip of amber liquid from a glass without taking her eyes off the shearing. Her facial features were shared by her daughter. They had the same deep-set eyes, sallow skin and wide mouth. But to Aaron, Ellie's mother looked a hundred years old. It was years before he realised on that day she would not have even been forty. As he watched... Ellie's mother closed her eyes and tilted her head back sharply. She took a deep breath, her features creasing. When she opened her eyes again, they fixed on her husband, staring at him with a look so pure and undiluted, Aaron was terrified Deacon would turn and see it for himself. Regret. The weather that year had made the work harder for everyone, and a month later Deacon's nephew Grant had moved into their farmhouse to lend a hand. Ellie's mother left two days after that. Perhaps it had been the final straw. One man to resent was plenty enough for anyone. Throwing two suitcases and a clinking bag of bottles into an old car, she had tried half-heartedly to stem her daughter's tears with weightless vows that she would be back soon. Fork wasn't sure how many years it had been until Ellie had stopped believing it. He wondered if part of her might have believed it until the day she died. Fork now stood on the porch of the fleece with Rako while the sergeant lit a cigarette. He offered the packet and Fork shook his head. He'd spent enough time down memory lane for one night. Smart choice, Rako said. I'm trying to quit for the baby. Right. Good on you. Rako smoked slowly, blowing the vapour into the hot night sky. The pub noise had ratcheted up a notch. Deacon and Dow had taken their time leaving and the hint of aggression still hung in the air. You should have told me earlier. Ranko took a drag, suppressed a cough. I know, I'm sorry. You have anything to do with it, that girl's death? No, but I wasn't with Luke when it happened, not like we said. Ranko paused. So you lied about your alibi? Where was Luke? I don't know. You never asked? Of course I did, but he... Fork paused, remembering... He always insisted on sticking to our story, always, even when it was only the two of us. He said it was safer to be consistent. I didn't push it. I was grateful to him, you know. I thought it was for my benefit. Who else knew it was a lie? Few people suspected. Mal Deacon, obviously. Some others, but no one knew for certain. At least that's what I always thought, but now I'm not sure. Turns out Jerry Hadler knew all along. Maybe he's not the only one. Do you think Luke killed Ellie? I don't know. He stared out at the empty street. I want to know. You think all this is connected? I really hope not. Rako sighed. He stubbed the cigarette out carefully, then doused the butt with a splash of beer. All right, mate, he said. Your secret's safe with me, for now unless it needs to come out, in which case you sing like a canary and I knew nothing about any of it, right? Yes. Thank you. Meet me at the station at nine tomorrow morning. We'll go and have a chat to Luke's mate, Jamie Sullivan, the last person who admits seeing him alive. 
he looked at Fork. If he's still in town, with a wave, he headed off into the night. Back in his room, Fork lay on his bed and pulled out his mobile. He held it in his palm but didn't dial. The huntsman had disappeared from above the lamp. He tried not to think about where it was now. If you're still in town, Rako had said. Fork was all too aware he had the choice. His car was parked right outside. He could pack his bag, pay the bearded bartender and be on the road to Melbourne inside 15 minutes. Rako might roll his eyes and Jerry would try to call, but what could they do? They wouldn't be pleased, but he could live with that. Barb, though. Fork could picture her face with unwelcome clarity. Barb would be dismayed. And he wasn't entirely sure he could live with that. Fork shifted uncomfortably at the thought. The room felt airless in the heat. He had never known his own mother. She had died in a hemorrhaging pool of her own blood less than an hour after he was born. His dad had tried, tried hard even, to fill the gap. But any sense Fork had growing up of maternal tenderness, every warm cake from the oven, every over-perfumed cuddle, had come from Barb Hadler. She may have been Luke's mother, but she'd always made time for him. He, Ellie and Luke had spent more time at the Hadler's house than at any of the others. Fork's own home was often silent and empty, his father trapped for hours by the demands of the land. Ellie would shake her head at suggestions they go to her house. Not today, she'd say. When he and Luke had insisted for variety, Fork always found himself regretting it. Ellie's house was messy, with a whiff of empty bottles. The Hadler's place was sunlit and busy, with good things coming from the kitchen and clear instructions about homework and bedtime and orders to turn off that damn TV and get some fresh air. The Hadler's farm had always been a haven, until two weeks ago, when it had become a crime scene of the worst kind. Fork lay unmoving on the bed. Fifteen minutes had passed. He could be on the road by now. Instead, he was still there. He sighed and rolled over, his fingers hovering over his phone as he considered who he needed to inform. He pictured his St Kilda flat, the lights off, front door locked up tight. Big enough for two, but for the past three years, home only to him. No one was waiting there anymore. No one fresh from the shower with music playing and a bottle of red breathing on the kitchen counter. No one eager to answer the phone and interested to hear why he was staying a few extra days. Most of the time he was fine with that. But at that moment, lying in a pub room in Kiwara, he wished he'd built a home a little more like Barb and Jerry Hadler's than one just like his father's. He was due back at work on Monday, but they knew he'd been at a funeral. He'd avoided saying whose. He could stay, he knew. He could take a few days. For Barb, for Ellie, for Luke even. He'd built up more overtime and goodwill on the Pemberley case than he could use. His latest investigation was a slow burn at best. Fork mulled it over and another 15 minutes passed. Finally, he picked up his phone and left a message for the Financial Division's long-suffering secretary, informing her he'd be taking a week's leave for personal reasons effective immediately. It was hard to say which one of them was more surprised. Chapter 9 
Jamie Sullivan had been at work for more than four hours by the time Fork and Rako tramped across his fields. He was on one knee, his bare hands deep in the dry dirt, checking the soil with scientific scrutiny. We're going to the house, he said when Rako told him they had questions about Luke. I need to check on my gran anyways. Fork studied Sullivan as they followed him towards the low brick building. Late twenties, he had a dusting of straw blonde hair that was prematurely thinning at the crown. His torso and legs were wiry, but his arms were built like pistons, giving him the shape of an inverted triangle. At the house, Sullivan led them into a cluttered hallway. Fork took off his hat and fought to keep the look of surprise off his face. Behind him, he heard Rako swear under his breath as his shin connected with a footstool lurking by the door. The hallway was chaotic. Every surface was crammed with ornaments and knick-knacks gathering dust. Somewhere deep in the house a television blared. It's all grands, Sullivan answered the question that neither of them had asked out loud. She likes them and they keep her, he considered, present. He led them through to the kitchen, where a bird-like woman was standing at the sink. Her blue-veined hands trembled under the weight of a filled kettle. All right there, Gran, fancy a cupper? Let me. Sullivan hastily took the kettle from her. The kitchen was clean but disorganised, and above the stove a large scorch mark stained the wall. The paint had blistered and was peeling away like an ugly grey wound. Mrs Sullivan glanced at the three men and then back at the door. When's your dad getting home? He's not, Gran, Sullivan said. He died, remember? Three years now. Yes, I know. It was impossible to tell whether she was surprised by the news or not. Sullivan looked at Fork and nodded towards the doorway. Could you take her through? I'll be in in a minute. Fork could feel the bones through the loose skin of the old woman's arm as she leaned on him. The living room felt claustrophobic after the brightness of the kitchen, and everywhere half-empty cups jostled with blank-eyed china figurines for precious space. Fork led the woman to a threadbare armchair near the window. Mrs Sullivan sat down shakily with an irritated sigh. You officers are here about Luke Hadler, aren't you? Don't touch those, she snapped as Rako went to move a pile of dog-eared newspapers from a chair. Her vowels carried a trace of an Irish lilt. No need to look at me like that, I'm not completely daft yet. That fella Luke was round here then went off and did away with his family, didn't he? Why else would you be here? Unless our Jamie's been up to something he shouldn't. Her laugh sounded like a rusty gate. Not that we know of, Falk said, exchanging a glance with Rako. Did you know Luke well? I didn't know him at all, other than he was friends with our Jamie. Came round from time to time, gave him a hand on the farm. Sullivan came through carrying a tea tray. Ignoring his grand's protest, he cleared a space on the sideboard and waved at Fork and Rako to sit down on the battered couch. Sorry about the mess, Sullivan said, handing round cups. Gets a bit tricky. He glanced towards his gran and turned his focus instead to the teapot. He had shadows under his eyes that made him look older, Fork noticed. But he had a confidence about him, the way he took stock of the situation and managed the room. Fork could imagine him away from all of this, wearing a suit in a city office somewhere making six figures and blowing half of it on expensive wines. Sullivan finished passing out the drinks 
and pulled up a cheap wooden chair. So what do you want to know? We're tidying up one or two loose ends, Rako said. For the Hadlers, Fork added. Right, no worries if it's for Barb and Jerry, Sullivan said. But look, the first thing I want to say and what I told the Clyde cops is that if I'd known, if there'd been any suggestion that Luke was about to go off and do what he did, I'd never have let him leave. I want to say that straight off. He looked down and fiddled with his mug. Course, mate, no one's saying you could have stopped what happened, Rako said, but if you could run through it one more time, that would be helpful, so we can hear for ourselves, just in case. Rabbits, Sullivan told him. That was the problem. One of them, at least. Hard enough to get through the drought without them attacking everything worth eating. He'd been complaining in the fleece the night before, and Luke had offered to give him a hand. Anyone here making the arrangements? Fork said. Probably, I don't remember specifically, but it was pretty busy. Anyone could have heard if they'd bothered listening. Luke Hadler pulled up at the entrance to the field and climbed out of his ute. He was five minutes early, but Jamie Sullivan was already there. The pair each raised a hand in greeting. Luke reached into the cargo tray for his shotgun and took the ammunition Sullivan handed him. Come on, let's get these bastard bunnies of yours, Luke said, flashing his teeth. You supplied the ammo? Rako asked. What kind? Winchester? Why? Rako caught Fork's eye. Not the missing Remingtons, then. Did Luke bring any of his own? I don't think so. My bunnies, my bullets, was my way of thinking. Why? Just checking. How did Luke seem to you? I don't know, really. I've gone over that in my head a lot since then. But I suppose I'd have to say that he seemed fine. Normal. Sullivan thought for a minute. By the time he left, at least. Luke's first few shots were poor, and Sullivan glanced over. Luke was chewing on the skin around his thumb. Sullivan said nothing. Luke shot again. Missed. All right, mate, Sullivan said reluctantly. He and Luke tended to confide in each other as much as Sullivan did with any of his friends, which was to say, hardly at all. On the other hand, he didn't have all day to get these rabbits dealt with. The sun bored down on their backs. Fine, Luke shook his head, distracted. You? Yeah, same, Sullivan hesitated. He could easily leave it there. Luke shot and missed again. Sullivan decided to try to meet the man halfway. My grand's getting a bit on the frail side these days, Sullivan said, can be a handful. She okay? Luke said without taking his eyes off the rabbit warren. Yes, just a bit tricky looking after her sometimes. Luke nodded vaguely, and Sullivan realised he was only half listening. That's bloody women for you, Luke said. At least yours can't run around carrying on about God knows what anymore. Sullivan, who had never once in his life considered his grand to be in the same category as women, struggled to think of a response. No, I suppose not, he said. He felt they had somehow strayed into uncharted waters. Everything okay with Karen? Oh, yeah, no worries. Luke levelled his gun, pulled the trigger. Better this time. You know, Karen's Karen, always something happening. He took a breath as if to say something else, then stopped, changed his mind. Sullivan fidgeted, definitely uncharted waters. Right. He tried to think of something else to add, but his mind was blank. He glanced over at Luke, who had lowered his gun and was watching him. 
their eyes met for a moment. The atmosphere had become decidedly uncomfortable. Both men turned back to the warren. Always something happening, Rako said. What did he mean by that? Sullivan looked at the table miserably. I don't know, I didn't ask, I should have asked, shouldn't I? Yes, Falk thought. No, he said. It probably wouldn't have made a difference. He didn't know whether that was true. Did Luke say anything else about it? Sullivan shook his head. No. We got back onto the weather, like always. An hour later, Luke stretched. I think that's made a dent in him. He checked his watch. Better make a move. He handed the spare ammunition back to Sullivan. They walked together back to the ute. Any early attention now dissolved. Quick beer? Sullivan took off his hat and wiped his face with his forearm. Nah, I should get home. Things to do, you know. Right. Well, thanks for your help. No worries, Luke shrugged. Finally got my eye in, at least. He put his unloaded gun in the footwell of the ute's passenger seat and climbed in. Now that he'd made up his mind to go, he seemed in a hurry to leave. He rolled down the window and gave a short wave as he pulled away. Sullivan stood alone in the empty field and watched the silver ute disappear. They mulled the scenario over in silence. By the window, Mrs Sullivan's teacup rattled against the saucer as she placed it down on a pile of novels. She glared at it. What happened then? Rako said. A while later, the Clyde police rang looking for Luke, Sullivan said. I told them he'd left a couple of hours earlier. The news was everywhere about five minutes after that, though. What time was that? Probably about 6.30, I reckon. You were here? Yeah. And before that, when Luke left, you did what? Nothing. Work here on the farm, Sullivan said. I finished up outside. Had dinner with Gran. Fork blinked as his eye caught a tiny movement. It was just the two of you here, Falk kept his voice light. You didn't leave at all, no one else came by? Nah, just us. It would have been easy to miss, but when Falk thought about it afterwards, he felt sure. In the corner of his vision, Mrs Sullivan had jerked her pale gaze up in surprise. She'd stared at her grandson for barely half a moment, before casting her eyes back down. Falk had watched closely, but she didn't look up again once. For the short remainder of their visit, she appeared to be sound asleep. Chapter 10 I tell you, I would be climbing the bloody walls, Rako shuddered behind the steering wheel. Outside, a thin wire fence protecting yellow scrub flashed past. Beyond, the fields were beige and brown. Cooped up in the middle of nowhere with no one but the old lady, that house was like a weird museum. Not a fan of China cherubs, Fork said. Mate, my gran is more Catholic than the Pope. When it comes to quasi-religious ornaments, I can see you and raise you, Rako said. Just doesn't seem much of a life for a guy his age. They passed a fire-warning sign by the side of the road. The alert level had been lodged at Severe since Fork arrived. The arrow pointed insistently at the bright orange segment of the semicircle. Prepare. Act. Survive. Was he being straight with us, you reckon? 
Falk explained how Sullivan's grandmother had reacted to his claim he'd been at home that evening. That's interesting. She's quite batty, though, isn't she? Bit of a mean streak as well. There was nothing in the report suggesting Sullivan was out and about, but that doesn't really mean anything. He probably wasn't checked too thoroughly, if at all. The thing is, Falk leaned forward to fiddle with the air conditioner. If Sullivan wanted to kill Luke, it would have been easy. They were out in the middle of nowhere with shotguns for over an hour. It's an open invitation to stage an accident. His grand could have pulled it off out there. Falk gave up on the air conditioner and wound down his window a crack. Letting in a stream of boiling air, he hastily rolled it back up. Rako laughed. <laughs> I thought the heat was bad in Adelaide. That's where you were? What brought you all the way out here? First chance for a sergeant's posting. Seemed like a good opportunity to run my own station, and I was a country kid anyway. You always worked in Melbourne? Mostly. Always been based there. You like doing the financial stuff? Falk smiled to himself at Rako's tone. Polite yet complete disbelief that anyone had chosen that route. It was a familiar reaction. People were always surprised to discover how often the banknotes he handled were sticky with blood. Suits me, he said. Speaking of, I started going through the Hadler's financial records last night. Anything interesting? Not yet, Fork stifled a yawn. He'd stayed up late peering at the numbers under the weak wattage of his room's main light, which is telling in itself. The farm was struggling, that's obvious, but I'm not sure it was doing much worse than any of the others around here. At least they'd planned for it a bit, put some money away during the good times. Their life insurance policy was nothing special, just the basic attached to their super. Who gets that? Charlotte, via Luke's parents. It's pretty minimal, though. I'll probably pay off the mortgage and not much more. She'll get the farm, I guess, whether she likes it or not. So far, no other real red flags. Multiple accounts, large withdrawals, third-party debts, that sort of stuff. I'll keep at it. The main thing Fork had learned from the exercise was that Karen Hadler was a competent and thorough bookkeeper. He'd felt a pang of infinity with her as he'd followed her ordered numbers and careful pencil markings. Rako slowed as he approached a deserted junction and checked his watch. Seven minutes gone. They were following Luke's route home from Sullivan's place. Rako turned left onto the road towards the Hadler's farmhouse. It was paved, but not well. Deep cracks showed where the bitumen had swelled and shrunk with the seasonality of a crop. It was technically a two-way road, but was barely wide enough for two vehicles to pass side by side. A head-on meeting would force one to take a neighbourly dip into the scrub, Falk imagined. He didn't get the opportunity to find out. They didn't meet a single vehicle the whole way. Nearly 14 minutes door-to-door, Falk said as Rako pulled up at the Hadler's driveway. All right, let's see where Luke's body was found. It was barely even a clearing. Rako managed to shoot past it and swore quietly, screeching to a halt. He reversed a few metres and pulled over at the side of the road. They got out, not bothering to lock the doors. There was no one else around. Rako led the way to a gap in the tree line. It's in here. There was a pocket of eerie silence, as invisible birds were momentarily stilled by the sound of his voice. The gap opened into a small space, big enough for a vehicle to drive in, but not turn around. Fork stood in the centre. It was fractionally cooler here, 
shaded on all sides by a sentry line of ghost gums. The road was completely hidden by the thick growth. Something in the bush rustled and scurried away. The yellow earth was baked solid. No tracks or wheel marks. Directly beneath Falk's feet, in the centre of the clearing, lay a dusting of loose sand. He realised what it had been put down to cover and hastily stepped off. The area had been trampled over by dozens of boots recently, but other than that, it looked ill-used. Pretty miserable place to spend your last moments, Falk said. Was this spot supposed to mean anything to Luke? Rako shrugged, hoping you might have some idea about that. Falk searched his memory for old camping trips, boyhood adventures. Nothing came to mind. He definitely died here in the back of the ute, Falk said. No chance he was shot somewhere else and moved? None at all. Blood pattern was definitive. Falk tried to organise the timeline in his head. Luke had left Jamie Sullivan's around 4.30pm. Luke's ute was on camera at the Hadler's farm about 30 minutes later, longer than it had taken Fork and Rayco to drive the same distance. Two gunshots, four minutes, and the ute had driven away. It's fairly straightforward if Luke shot his family, Fork said. He drove himself to the house, taking the scenic route for whatever reason, killed them, then drove himself here. Yeah, gets a lot more complicated if it was someone else, though. Rako said. The killer had to be inside Luke's ute at some point soon after he left Sullivan's because Luke had the murder weapon with him. So who drove it to the farmhouse? And, if it wasn't Luke behind the wheel, where the hell was he while his family was being murdered? Sitting in the passenger seat watching it happen? Falk said. Rako shrugged. Maybe he was. I mean, it, it's a possible scenario. Depending on who the other person was, what kind of hold they might have had over him. They looked at each other, and Falk knew Rako was also thinking about Sullivan. Or the killer could have physically overpowered him, Rako said. Might have taken a bit of effort, but some people could do it. You saw Sullivan's arms, like walnuts packed into a sock. Falk nodded, and thought back to the report on Luke's body. He was a decent-sized bloke, a healthy male other than the gunshot wound. No defensive marks on his hands, no sign of ligature marks or other restraints. He pictured Luke's corpse lying flat on its back in the ute's cargo tray. The blood pooled around him and the four unexplained streaks on the side of the metal tray. Bloody women, Falk said out loud. What do you think he meant by that? I don't know, Rako said, glancing at his watch. But we're set to meet someone who might later this arvo. I thought it could be worth seeing what Karen Hadler kept in her desk drawer. Chapter 11 The wattled sapling looked a little less sickly once it was in the ground, but not much. Uniformed schoolchildren looked on in bewilderment as mulch was shoveled around its base. Teachers and parents stood in loose groups, some crying openly. A handful of the wattles' fuzzy yellow buds gave up the fight immediately and fluttered to the ground. They settled near a plaque with the fresh engraving in memory of Billy Hadler and Karen Hadler, much loved and missed by our school family. The sapling didn't stand a chance, Falk thought. He could feel the heat through the soles of his shoes. 
Back on the grounds of his old primary school, Falk was again struck by the feeling that he could be 30 years in the past. The asphalt playground was a miniature version of the one he remembered, and the water fountain seemed absurdly low. But it was instantly familiar, sparking half-remembered flashes of faces and events he'd long forgotten. Luke had been a good ally to have back then. He was one of those kids with an easy smile and a sharp wit who could navigate the jungle lore of the playground effortlessly. Charismatic would have been the word, if they'd known it at that age. He was generous with his time, his jokes, his belongings, his parents. Everyone was welcome at the Hadler household. He was loyal almost to a fault. When Fork had once taken a stray football in the face, he'd had to drag Luke off the kid who'd kicked it. Fork, tall and awkward then, was always aware he was lucky to have Luke on his side. Fork shifted uncomfortably as the ceremony came to a close. Scott Whitlam, Principal, Rako said, nodding as a fit-looking man in a tie politely extracted himself from a crowd of parents. Whitlam came over, one hand extended. Sorry to keep you waiting, he said after Rako introduced Fork. Everyone wants to talk at a time like this. Whitlam was in his early 40s and moved with the easy energy of a retired athlete. He had a broad chest and a wide smile. Half an inch of clean brown hair was visible under the bottom of his hat. It was a nice service, Falk said, and Whitlam glanced back at the sapling. It's what we needed. He lowered his voice. Tree hasn't got a hope in hell, though. God knows what we're supposed to tell the kids when it dies. Anyway... He nodded towards the blonde brick building. We've gathered together anything belonging to Karen and Billy, like you asked. There's not a lot, I'm afraid, but it's in the office. They followed him across the grounds. A bell rang somewhere in the distance. End of the school day. Up close, the buildings and play equipment made a depressing sight. Painted chipped from every surface and the exposed metal was red with rust. There were cracks in the plastic slide and only one end of the basketball court had a hoop. The signs of a community in poverty were everywhere. Funding, Whitlam said when he saw them looking around. There's never enough. Around the back of the school building, a few sad sheep stood in brown paddocks. Beyond, the land rose sharply to a chain of hills covered with bushland. The principal stopped to fish a handful of leaves out of the sheep's water trough. Do you still teach farm skills these days? Falk remembered checking a similar water trough once upon a time. Some... We try to keep it light, though, have some fun. The kids get enough of the gritty realities at home, Whitlam said. You teach it? God, no, I'm a humble city slicker. We moved up from Melbourne 18 months ago and I've just about learned to tell one end of a cow from the other. My wife fancied a change of scenery from the city. He paused. We got one, all right. He pushed open a heavy door to a hallway that smelled like sandwiches. Along the walls, kids' paintings and drawings were pinned up. Jesus, some of these are depressing, Rako murmured. Falk could see what he meant. There were stick-figure families in which every face had a crayon mouth turned downwards. A painting of a cow with angel wings. Toffee, my cow in heaven, the shaky caption read. In every attempt at landscape, the fields were coloured brown. You should see the ones we didn't put up, Whitlam said, stopping at the office door. The drought. It's going to kill this town. He took an enormous bunch of keys from his pocket and led them into his office. Pointing them to a couple of chairs that had seen better days, he disappeared into a store cupboard. 
He emerged a moment later carrying a sealed cardboard box. Everything's in here. Bits and pieces from Karen's desk, some of Billy's schoolwork. Mostly paintings and worksheets, I'm afraid. Thanks. Rako took it from him. They're missed. Whitlam leaned against his desk. Both of them. We're all still reeling. How closely did you work with Karen? Forecast. Reasonably so, we've only got a small staff. She was excellent. She looked after the finances and accounts. Good at it too. Too smart for this job really, but I think it suited her with childcare and things. The window was open a crack, and the sounds from the playground drifted through. Look, can I ask why you're here? Whitlam said. I thought this was resolved. It involved three members of the same family, Rako said. Unfortunately, something like that's never clear-cut. Right, of course. Whitlam sounded unconvinced. The thing is, I've got an obligation to make sure students and staff are safe, so if... We're not suggesting there's anything to worry about, Scott, Rako said. If there's something you need to know, we'll make sure you know it. All right, message received, Whitlam said. What can I do to help you? Tell us about Karen. The knock was quiet but firm. Whitlam looked up from his desk as the door opened. A blonde head poked around. Scott, have you got a minute? Karen Hadler stepped into his office. She wasn't smiling. She stopped by to speak to me the day before she and Billy were killed, Whitlam said. She was worried, of course. Why, of course, Rako asked. Sorry, I didn't mean that to sound facetious, but you saw those kids' pictures on the wall. I meant everyone's scared. The adults are no different. He thought for a moment. Karen was a really valued team member, but she'd become quite stressed in those last couple of weeks. She was snappy, which was unusual, definitely distracted, and she'd been making one or two errors in the accounts. Nothing serious, we caught them, but again, it was unlike her. It bothered her. She was normally so precise. So she came to see me about it. Karen shut the door behind her. She chose the seat closest to Whitlam's desk. She sat straight-backed and crossed her legs neatly at the ankles. Her wraparound dress was flattering but modest, with a subtle print of white apples against a red background. Karen was the kind of woman whose youthful good looks had been softened by age and childbirth into something less defined but just as appealing in their own way. She could easily be cast as a how-does-she-do-it mum in a supermarket ad. Anyone could have confidence in a brand of detergent or cereal Karen Hadler recommended. Now she was clutching a small stack of papers on her lap. Scott, she began, then stopped. He waited. She took a deep breath. Scott, to be honest, I wasn't sure about coming to you with this. My husband... Karen held his gaze but Whitlam felt she was forcing herself. Luke, well, look, he wouldn't be happy. Rako leaned forward. Did she sound scared of her husband? I didn't think so at the time, Whitlam pinched the bridge of his nose, but knowing what happened the next day makes me realise I probably wasn't listening closely enough. I worry that I missed the signs. I've asked myself that every day, but I want to be clear that if I'd suspected for a minute that they were in danger... I'd obviously never have let her and Billy go home. Whitlam's words unconsciously echoed Jamie Sullivan's. Karen fiddled with her wedding ring. 
You and I have worked together for a while, worked together well, I would say. She looked up and Whitlam nodded. I feel I have to say something. She paused again and took a deep breath. I know there have been some issues lately with me and my work, a few mistakes here and there. One or two perhaps, but there's no harm done, Karen. You're a good worker, everyone can see that. She nodded once, dropping her eyes. When she looked up, her face was set. Thank you, but there is a problem, and I can't turn a blind eye to it. She said the farm was going under, Whitlam said. Karen thought they had six months, maybe less. She said Luke didn't believe it. Apparently he was sure things would turn around, but she said she could see it coming. She was worried. She actually apologised to me. Whitlam made a little noise of disbelief. <laughs> Seems absurd now. But she said she was sorry she'd been so distracted. Karen asked me not to tell Luke that she'd told me. Not that I would have, of course, but she said he'd be upset if he thought she'd been spreading it around town. Whitlam chewed his thumbnail. I think she needed to get it off her chest. I got her a glass of water, listened for a while. Reassured her that her job wasn't at risk, that sort of thing. Did you know Luke Hadler well? Falk said. Not well. I met him a few times, of course, parents' night. I'd seen him down the pub occasionally, but not really to chat to. He seemed nice enough, though. Active parent as well. I couldn't believe it when I got that call. It's bad enough to lose a member of staff, but to lose a student. That's the teacher's worst nightmare. Falk said, who told you what had happened? Someone from Clyde Police phoned the school, I suppose because Billy was a pupil. It was late-ish by then, close to seven. I'd been about to leave for the night, but I remember sitting here instead trying to process it, trying to work out how to tell the children the next day. He shrugged sadly. There is no good way. Billy and my daughter were quite good friends, you know. They were in the same class. So it was such a shock to hear Billy was caught up in it. What do you mean? asked Rako. Because he was supposed to be round at our place that afternoon, Whitlam said, as if it were obvious. He looked back and forth between Falks and Rako's blank faces. He held out his hands, confused. Sorry, I thought you knew. I told the Clyde officers... Billy was supposed to come over and play that day, but Karen called my wife and cancelled at the last minute. She said Billy had been under the weather. He was well enough to come to school, though. Did you and your wife believe her? Forecast, leaning forward. Whitlam nodded. Yes, we still do, for the record. There'd been a mild bug going around. She might have decided he needed an early night. I think it was just one of those sad coincidences. He rubbed his hand over his eyes. But something like that, he said, knowing how close he came to not being there. God, it leaves you with a lot of what-ifs. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold.
Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com.